we're going to begin a, a second session on the topic of discipleship. And, and in order to get you there, I want you to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 28. And while you're doing that, I, I would like to open with a word of prayer. My heart, I, I had such a busy week, and I'm still connecting with the text, and I'm still feeling the Spirit work through me, even though the sermon is done in preparation, and even though I'm up here. Um, I, I am really, really feeling that the Lord needs to work on our hearts to open up the desire to be a disciple is something that I think that the church is really neglecting. I, I don't mean you. I'm not trying to accuse anyone here specifically. It's a trend that I see within the greater church. It's a trend that I see in my own life. And it's something that I think that if so many struggle with it, I'm sure that there are many here who do as well. And so let's uh, turn to Matthew 28 and open up our hearts in prayer briefly. Dear Father, we come to you today with a desire that our hearts would be filled with a desire to be sharpened by one another and that we can understand that we cannot, within the power of our flesh, not because we don't try hard enough, but because the, the flesh is too weak, we cannot perfect ourselves enough to obey. We cannot be saved by the Spirit and then perfected by the flesh. And Father, if we are to be perfected in sanctification, it must be by the spurring on of one another within the movement of the Holy Spirit. You make this clear. I pray that we would see this as a requirement in our faith, that we would prove our salvation, not merely by that we believe, but that by we disciple and that we are discipled. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in us this morning. We pray for your grace and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a, a unique, this isn't in my sermon, I'm just adding on to it to make you sit longer. Um, I, I went to a funeral this week, and it was for a, a guy I rarely met. Actually, it wasn't him, it was for his wife, but uh, I, I rarely met him, and I met his wife even less, uh, but they discipled, and he was a discipler of mine over the phone. One, one day he approached me and said, Jeff, I'd like to call you and pray with you every week. There's a couple guys that I do that with. I'd like to, to do that with you. I said, yeah, that'd be fine. That was in 2014. And until his wife died at the end of November, I don't recall him missing a single week. And uh, several years ago, um, he came down to San Diego in California where I was at at the time. And I asked him, um, why are there so many guys here meeting you? I thought it was just going to be a you and me lunch. He goes, well, there's a lot of guys I keep in touch with around here, Jeff. And I said, I heard them talking about how every week they would be called by Ron Hardy to pray and go over scripture. And I thought, wow, I thought I was the only one. And so I, I said, how many guys do you do this with, Ron? And he goes, Jeff, last time I checked, there was 120 guys every week that I call. And then at his, funeral, at his wife's funeral, it was even greater. She died of ALS. It started in the chest where it usually finishes, apparently. She lost her voice fairly quickly. And there was testimony after testimony of ladies sending in letters or ladies going up to the pulpit to, to say how Carolyn Hardy, even when she had lost her voice, even when she lost the ability to speak, would still say, I want to show up to this lady's work to let her know how much I love her and how, how much I want her to grow. And I want you to know what a treasure it is to be in that kind of a relationship with another person 
who displays Jesus, and all they want is for you to display Jesus. I want you to know that as we, we go in, and so um, now with the sermon. Uh, last year, my wife and I, we actually had an opportunity to go to a wedding for a friend of mine. He was a groomsman at my wedding, and the entire 13 years I knew him, I, I don't think he dated the entire time. I don't think he got any dates. Nobody looked at him. Uh, wonderful guy, but just couldn't pull it off, I guess. I don't know. And uh, finally, he got married. My wife hooked him up with a guy, so she's living the dream. She actually um, played matchmaker and won, so if you guys want to take lessons from her, you can. I know that all of you want to learn to do that. Uh, but he got married, and the best man, his brother gets up to the, the stage for the best man's speech, and he looks at him and goes, Andrew, from the bottom of my heart, I want to tell everybody, finally, finally you're married, and finally the awkward questions can end, because he was always being asked, when are you getting married? When are you going to get married? You're such a sweet boy. When are you going to get married? And of course, it was always so awkward. And so his brother came up and said, finally, the awkward questions can end. And then it was my turn. And uh, seeing an opportunity, I thought, I'm going to ask an awkward question. And so not 30 minutes into their marriage, no one could ever ask them again, when are you going to get married? So I looked up and I said in front of everybody, so when are you going to have kids? But the awkward questions never end. Uh, and my wife and I learned that two years ago when we realized that the only question that's more awkward than when are you going to have kids is when are you going to have your second kid? You see, at that time, Tristan was three, going on four. And uh, by that time, if you haven't had a second kid, it's usually because you can't. It's usually because the doctors told you that you're not going to have any more kids. And that's where we were. That's what situation we were in. And it was heartbreaking whenever someone would come up and say, when are you going to have a, another kid? You know, Tristan's not going to be able to relate to your, your son if you don't have another one quickly. And we, anyway. So one day we were uh, standing in the parking lot. My wife was there. And uh, someone from the neighborhood came up and, and talked with her. And uh, I, I got to say, there's something magical about how the closer you get to 35, the more you start to look and feel like 50. And so my wife being with a, I'm going to be gracious here. I know she's, she's right there. Um, my wife uh, having a three-year-old at home and, and going through COVID, she began to look tired and uh, some other things were going on. And the lady walked up and said, are you pregnant? My wife said, no, I'm, I'm not pregnant. Are you sure? you look like you're six months pregnant. And my wife, trying to be gracious, managed to say, no, I'm not six months pregnant. I'm, I'm not pregnant. And so the lady, realizing her taboo, looked at her and in a little bit of shame said, oh, actually, now that I think about it, you don't look six months pregnant. You only look three months pregnant. <laughs> if you know Brian Regan, he's a comedian, he has a, a joke, and he says, Never joke, never guess whether someone is pregnant ever, 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 right? So the point here is that it is possible to look like something you're not. And where I'm going with this is it's possible to fulfill all the outward requirements and displays of faith, church attendance, and, you know, Awana or whatever it is, do all those things and look like your health, your spiritual health is good. But the reality is that 
judging someone's spiritual health based off their church attendance is just as faulty as guessing a lady is pregnant just because she's tired and a little bit overweight. Jesus says that the proper Christian life is proven by more than these small things. James says that our Christian life is proven by works, and Jesus makes it clear that works are attained by discipleship. And so I want to impress upon you the need that you have to be in discipleship. It is a wonderful requirement that all of us have. And in order to address this, I want us to read from Matthew 28, uh, very familiar, verse 16 to, uh, my affliction on, verse 16 to 20. It says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw, them, so they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in, a he in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now, if we were to attempt what Jesus' last words were uh, before ascending to, into heaven based on the priorities of the local church, based off of what we see the local church doing, if we were to try to guess what Jesus said in his last sentence, uh, I don't think we would guess necessarily bad things by looking at the modern evangelical church. I, I think that we would guess that he said something like, be countercultural or uh, homeschool your kids. I think that we might guess that Jesus said, find emotional healing in Jesus. Or that he said, make sure to preach a good sermon so that everyone goes home feeling convicted. And I, I don't think that those are necessarily bad things, but they aren't what Jesus said. What Jesus said instead was go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Oh, and by the way, I speak this with all of the authority that exists within all of heaven and all of earth. It's the highest command that he gave. He gave it with the fullness of his being of authority. And traditionally, when we look at this text, we associate it with missions uh, I think a lot of people, they look at this and they see where it says, go into all the nations, and they rightly so uh, establish this to mean a, a passage of call to evangelism, and, and that's good. But I think if we were to look at the heart of this text, the very base of what it is, I think what Jesus is saying is, yes, missions is important, evangelism is important, but mostly his concern, I think, is that when we become believers... He wants believers to be cultivated. You see where it, it says that? Not merely to believe, but to make disciples. And that the character of disciples is that they are people who grow fruit, who observe all that he commanded. This concern of fruitful faith is the meaning behind what Jesus says in the parable of the sowers, Matthew chapter 13. He says, As for what was sown amongst the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but cares for the world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
As for what is sown on good soil, he goes on and it says, he indeed bears fruit and yields. Growth and maturity is the heart behind why you believe. Roy Edgman, he commented on it thusly. He says, a wise gardener would never prepare the soil carefully to set out a young tomato plant only to neglect it. And an army that spends all of its time enlisting new recruits will never win any important battles. Simply put, it's not the planted seed of faith that produces fruit, but it is the nurturing of that faith that produces fruit. And what's more is that the only way that that seed may be nurtured into growth, Jesus says, is if we protect it from deceitfulness of the world through what he calls discipleship. Look at some verses with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17. You must no longer walk as the way that the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, for they are darkened in their understanding and are alienated from life in God. Galatians 5, 16. Walk by the Spirit, do not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The truth is that Jesus does not provide for our faith to be a two-tier commitment. It is not a two-level membership program. Aside from the popular opinion of the modern church, Jesus does not permit for us to say that I will believe in faith and I will leave the obedience and transformation up to the people who are really into this stuff. We are all of us called to use Jesus as the door through which we walk in and out of the practice of life. We are all of us called to pour contempt on the godly desires and give up our former practices. We are all of us called to take captive every thought for the purposes of Christ in order that we may des destroy the strongholds of sin within the heart. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because all of us are called, as Paul commanded, for us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Ephesians chapter 4. It is possible for us to have an unworthy walk of the salvation that we claim. And what's more is that the more that we begin to look at the salvation of Scripture in scriptural language, we begin to see that not only is there a great magnitude of transformation required, but we also begin to see the great difficulty in attaining it. All of us will fail. No matter who you are, you will not attain it not by your own will, and only barely by the help of others. When I was in college, I had a very mild roommate, uh, we can call him. We thought he was weird. Um, he grew up on a farm. He uh, was quiet, wore flannel a lot, wore cowboy boots. In L.A., that's weird. Out here, I think it might be normal. <laughs> but prude might be the right word for him in a good way. We thought it was weird because he blushed at every dirty joke, the ones that he understood anyway, most of them he never got. And one day at chapel, 
the speaker said that, believe it or not, there are people in this room who have never fallen in sexual sin. And all of us looked to this guy and said, well, I don't know if he's even interested in that, much less capable of falling in that. And we all praised God for him because while the rest of us were failing with our girlfriends or all the other ladies at school who didn't care about the holiness of their own body or of the bodies of the guys, and that works both ways, we would look at him playing video games in the room of the dorms and we had praised God for how steady and obedient he was never to be visually distracted. Well, six years later, I, I got in touch with him and he confessed to me that that entire time he had a crippling addiction to pornography. Even he got snagged. And what's more is that now that he's married, it continues and that it, his marriage was in trouble. And he said that he wished that he had joined all the accountability groups that we had been in. But he was too afraid because he knew what we thought of him. And he was too afraid to ask for help. All of us will fail. If not in that, that's a common one, then in something else. Because even Paul cried out in Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? Faith is hard. It's hard because it involves, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, that we run the race with the intent to win it. And that the way that we do it is that we beat the body into discipline so that we may obtain it. It's hard. And what's more is it's impossible to do it alone. We look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. If two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord will not quickly be broken. If you want to grow in your holiness and obedience, you must include actively the influence and protection of another person who is teaching you and displaying to you how to do so. Jason Bradley writes, Faith is a journey of intentional decisions leading to maturity in your relationship with Jesus so that you become more like him in your attitudes, your focus, and ultimately behavior. It's not something, he says, it is not something that happens by accident or overnight, and it cannot be accomplished in a six-week class. This is a lifelong commitment to follow God with your whole self and to, be, and to both learn from him, to learn from others, and eventually teach others to do so as well. And this is why I am particularly irked, the older that I get, at the view that the church takes at the Great Commission. It is an outward-focused verse. I get that. But there are very inward implications for you and me here in this room. And the more that we ignore the inward realities of this text, the more we reveal the hardness of our heart against the desire to obey, against the desire to be transformed. All of us need to be in discipleship. All of us need help. 
And if Jesus says that the way that we learn to obey is to be taught by others in discipleship, then it is a requirement for every one of us. And so I want to explain to you some reasons why I think you need to be in discipleship. It's a funny story. It was probably about 10 years ago that uh, the guy who got married, the one who I told you about, who I said, when are you going to have kids? Uh, we, we went traveling uh, a long time ago. We've been friends for a long time. And uh, he's, we decided that we wanted to go on an international trip. And, and I decided with him that we wanted to go to South Korea. And I had been there before. And I wanted to brag about how well-versed I was in international culture and how well I could lead him through this country. I thought it would be so great. Um, now, of course, I couldn't actually do any of that. Um, I, I didn't speak the language. Um, I didn't know where I was going. I had been on guided tours, but aside from that, I never made any journey of my own. And um, it involved me looking at a lot of hotel websites that weren't in English, and I just blindly clicked on things that I thought looked neat. Lesson of the story is don't do that. <laughs> um, now, at the time, I was working at a Korean church in L.A., and you would think that the smartest thing that I could do is to go to somebody at church and ask for help. And you would be right. That, that would have been the smartest thing that I could have done. But, of course, I didn't do that. And the fruit of that was that when we landed in Korea, we took a taxi to the hotel, and when we got to the hotel, we realized it was a bit, let's say, lusty is, is the word, uh, it turned out that it was the red light district of Seoul, and our hotel was what, uh, what you call a, a rent-by-the-hour love hotel, and when we opened the door, it revealed a scene straight out of an Austin Powers movie. Two-inch shag carpet, red polka dot walls, a giant see-through glass shower in the middle of the room, and a giant red heart-shaped bed in the corner. And I'll never forget what my friend said. We, we opened the door, flung it open. There was the, the stuff. My friend looked at me and said, Jeff, I don't like this vacation. <laughs> and then he was tired, so he said, I call shotgun, and then fell asleep on the bed. And it was, it was very expensive to get out of that hotel commitment. Let's just put it that way. You need help. You can't do this faith on your own, largely because you're trying to live a life without sin and that is not according to your language. You need help. You need to be in discipleship. And I have four reasons why you need to. First, you need to be in discipleship because the very nature of your salvation is that you are called to surrender things that you love. And you are called to love things that you hate. I want you to notice what the disciples did on the mountain in the Great Commission. It says that when they met Jesus on the mountain, it says that they worshipped him there, but then it says that they also doubted. Now, I find that profound. Why would they doubt? It says that they worshipped him, they witnessed him raised from the dead. The only doubter that we know about is Thomas. And Thomas got to put his finger in the hole of the spear of the resurrected Jesus to resolve his doubts. So what did they doubt? Well, when we look closer at that word doubted, the implications of the context and, and a quick word study reveals that it's not a doubting of conviction that they had or a doubting of understanding, but rather it was a hesitation and obedience. 
They were not quick to obey and follow. And in response to that, because they knew that the cost was so high and therefore they hesitated, Jesus saw their hesitation and commanded, go, do it, make disciples. When looking at the salvation, the call to salvation, Paul describes it as a not gratifying the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. That's in Galatians chapter 6. And that's bad news for anyone who lives in the flesh, because what it means is that we cannot follow the things of the spirit because we hate them. They're not our desires. Jesse Hamilton, in his book, Discipleship and the Evangelical Church, writes, devotion to Jesus surely requires at its foundation surrender. Make no mistake, to be devoted to carrying out the mission of Jesus as any devotion to anything must require involves giving up one's personal interests, pursuits, plans, desires, and ambitions in order to take on those of another, namely those of Christ. The call that Jesus gives us is that we are to follow him properly by taking up our cross to follow him, to renounce all that we have, that we must love him more than mothers, brothers, sisters, and lands. We must love him more than our own life. We must love even to the point to where we love people who committed sins against us. And we must love him by abiding in his word, which tells us that we are in sin. And none of those things will come naturally to you. Not a one. Clement of Rome, a very old saint, 99 AD, I think he died. He said is that it is only by training that you can learn these things. He says, let all Christians be partakers of true Christian training. Let them learn how great avail humility with God is, how much the spirit of pure affection can prevail with him, how excellent and great his fear is, and how it saves all those who walk in it with a pure mind. For they must learn that he is a searcher of thoughts and the desires of the heart. And they must love that his breath is in us and that when it pleases him, he will take it away. And because seeking discipleships, discipleship means that you must train your mind to love the things that your flesh hates. Be prepared that the barriers that lay between you and discipleship will be things like personal conflict, deep revulsion at the cost, and the expectation that your faith may be sufficiently and properly attained without it, and most especially by you in your circumstances. You will rationalize that you of all people, because of your situation, can get by without it. You do not desire have a, have a natural desire of the things of God, and only by training can you gain that desire. And it requires the training help of another to get it. That is the first reason. Second reason that you need discipleship is because salvation requires that you go beyond the natural ability of your perseverance. One of the reasons holiness is so hard is because none can continue in it. We can all start, 
but who can continue? Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a perfectly righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The very nature of your pursuit of obedience is that you will plateau. You will do it. You will reach the end of your ability. And this is the beauty of discipleship because at its core it is an anti-plateauing ministry. By gathering the strengths of somebody and helping them to perfect your own strengths. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Paul says this, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's the plateau. Paul continues, But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the nature of what you need to be daily exhorted. And in fact, when we look at that word exhort, it's, it's that word uh, it, well, I'm not going to say it because my accent is terrible, but it's a Greek word that, that means to call alongside, to stand next to as you watch and participate in obedience together. It is a discipleship word, calling people to participate together in the defeating of your physical plateau. That's why James chapter 5 gives us the command to confess your sins to another, to pray for one another. Because by doing this, we may be healed of all of the dirt that comes with the participation of our sin. This is the only way to ensure your sanctification. The third reason that you need to be in discipleship is because the proper exercise of your faith is knowing doctrine that you do not know and understanding things that you do not now understand. 1 Timothy chapter 1 has Paul urging Timothy that the first priority of those who wish to lead people in Christ is to protect them from bad doctrine, to protect them from people who devote themselves to teaching false things. Paul warns, certain people, by swerving from sound doctrine, have wandered into vanity, discerning or desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions by rejecting sound doctrine some have even made shipwrecks of their faith these are the people who are in the church who seek to confuse and mislead you to teach you things that are not true and that by all ways they may permit you to indulge in sin and if you think that you can be protected with uh, from that by, by ignoring the help of another person, understand that Paul also says that you will always, 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 always be tempted to accumulate around you teachers who will scratch your itching ears and permit you to live a life without stewardship. No person is free from the temptation of a false teaching that makes me feel a little bit less sinful for the things that I want to do. And therefore, if you want to protect your heart from that, you must have a sharpening brother or sister, like a Timothy, there to teach you that your desires are sin and that obedience has a cost. And number four, you need to be in discipleship because we are called to live life in circumstances beyond what you are capable of enduring. I want to ask you a question. Do you know what the first artistic rendition of Jesus Christ is that we found? The first picture 
in history that we have uncovered of Jesus. Do you know what it is? It's not what you think. You might think it's some mosaic of Christ or a picture of him on a coin or uh, some confessional somewhere in a house. That's actually not what it is. Instead, it's this. It's a, it's a rendition of a man crucified on a cross with the head of a donkey, a little boy worshiping it, and underneath is written, Alexamenos worships his God. They found this in what they think to be a boy's home in Rome, and the best they figure is that in this main hall, boys were teasing the one Christian kid and calling the God he worshipped an ass. This is the nature of the faith that you adopt. As soon as a person embraces belief in Jesus, they are asked by God to make themselves an enemy to this world. In the time of the apostles, the Christians were so ridiculed due to their lack of participation in things that were generally accepted practices, things like adultery, things like prostitution, things like homosexuality, uh, another practice that was akin to abortion, except what they would do is, is they called it exposure. If there was a kid that they didn't want, they would give birth to the kid and leave it in a field and then let nature take its course they were the adoption fields. Every now and then, someone who wanted a kid, they would walk out into these exposure fields and grab the pickings, harvest the baby. And um, I think legend has it that that's how uh, Octavian, um, that's uh, Julius Caesar's son, that's how he was adopted, he was found. But things like that, prostitution, adultery, homosexuality, Exposure and abortion, gladiatorial shows, and the acceptance of bribery. These things were so loved and accepted by Roman culture that any Christian who did not do it was so hated because they were considered not only prude but un-Roman by the refusal of these activities. And such is the nature of the call of Christians today that no person alive should be identified with the world. And therefore, no Christian alive can resist, to the point of blood, the influence and persecution of the world without a helping hand of another loving brother or sister beside them. And you know that that's true. Acts chapter 14 uh, says this the apostle, about the apostles. And when they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, what did they then do? It says, and then they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The nature is that your faith is hard for all of the things that we listed and more. And none of these can you do by yourself without the help of another brother or sister who knows what they're doing and will spur you on into obedience. And so now that we've established that you need to be in it, I, I want to encourage you where to begin. Um, I, I know that there are people here who are ready to lead discipleship, and, and we thank people like you. We, we love people like you. We are, we are glad to have people like you in our church. And if you want to lead a discipleship group, we do have discipleship classes. I, I think I just finished one a month ago. 
with our college leaders. And I know when Pastor Luke gets here, he's going to be really into that. And so if you want to lead discipleship, please take up the opportunity. But the purpose of today's sermon is not to tell you how to lead, but to address the issue that I think most of us struggle with. And that is that we, we just don't think we need to be in it. And now that we know we need to be in it, how do we start it, <laughs> right? And so I just want to give you some advice on how do you start discipleship? Where do you begin? Some practical stuff. And so the first thing that I want to encourage you is if you want to get into discipleship and be discipled, if you found the value of enduring through faith and obedience by being in discipleship, start here. Start with a group. My suggestion to you is, is grab a bunch of people that you normally hang out with and then invite an older man or woman who you admire for their obedience and say, will you be with us? Will you disciple us? Really, I, I know that one-on-one -on -one stuff is good and we always brag about we're being discipled by our, our own Barnabas or our own Apollos or our very own Paul, and it's a badge of honor, and I get that. But really, it's the group that's the secret sauce to making the magic of discipleship work, I found. Truthfully, if you were to ask me what the biggest hurdle of discipleship is for me, it's always the asking. Something about going up and asking somebody if they will disciple you feels like asking them on a date. <laughs> and it's a little bit more than that because it's not saying, hey, I want to hang out with you one time and seeing if it works. But it's almost like asking them to commit to a long-term relationship without having really been involved with them to that point. And it's weird. It's awkward. And I think that that's the biggest hurdle that, that most people can't overcome. And so they never get into the discipleship because they could just never get into the asking. But having a group, that removes that awkward individuality and makes it a team effort, doesn't it? What we find is that when we're in a group of people, not only does it make it easier to invite someone to come in without awkwardness, but additionally, it also increases growth because there's cross-pollination. If someone falls, there may be opportunities for other people to be encouraged because they may be able to say that, I've been there, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you how this works. If someone falls, there may be opportunities for people to help them along with positive encouragement and a little bit of ribbing and a little bit of shame giving to spur them on in harder work. There's also going to be more scriptural insight in the group that you're in. For every time that you have someone looking at the Bible, an extra set of eyes makes them see more. Another mind interprets more offering unique perspective. It's a wonderful way to go. If you're part of a friend group here at church, grab somebody and bring them in. Grab a Nick Ball and say, lead us. It's so much easier than just going up to one of these guys and say, lead me. It's easier and it works better. Two, commit to six months. I, had a friend, I have a friend in Indiana who married a guy she never dated. It wasn't arranged. They were friends. Uh, but he always had a, a crush on her and always had a hard time asking her to date him. And they would hang out and he would get flustered because of all the romantic feelings. And so one day, um, he heard 
her say how romantic she thought it would be if a guy would just walk up to her and say, will you marry me? And so that's what he did. He met her at his house on his front porch. They were going to go, I don't know, golfing or something. And instead of going golfing, he got on his knee and asked her to marry him. And all of her dreams came true, and she said yes. And they've been married now for 10 years, I think. Um, and, and I was going to say lightning doesn't strike twice, but her best friend saw how romantic that was and said, oh, I wish. And the guy that had a crush on her, he was like nine years younger than her, and she was like, oh, you're, you're a kid. I don't, <laughs> I don't want you. And so he heard about how her best friend got married by a guy who just asked. And so he got up the courage and just asked, and then she said yes. And so uh, weird. I, they're both Japanese. Maybe it's a Japanese thing. I don't know. But my point is that I don't think lightning will strike three times, okay? They've been married for a long time from a cold approach. And every discipleship that I've ever been in involved a cold approach. And in my 10 years of discipleship, I've never had one last longer than a year. Most didn't last longer than six months. And I used to feel really bad about that until I realized two things about a six-month discipleship. First, well, three things, I guess. The first one is that six months is long enough for you to realize that the person you're with, you don't like. And it, it, it's, it's long enough that you feel you, you committed, but short enough that it gives you an opportunity to seek somebody else. And that happens. It's weird. You, you feel dirty about it, but it's natural. It's okay. Not everybody matches together. But the, the, the two real things is this. First, Though we try, most discipleships hit a situation that kills the relationship after about a year. It happens. Someone has a kid. Someone has a promotion. Someone has a project. Someone changes classes. Something, they, they realize that they haven't spent enough time with their wife and they want to rest. But something always happens, and it will kill the availability of your discipleship relationship. Every discipleship relationship will come to a natural end. Secondly, most people are afraid to commit something if there's not a firm end date. We already mentioned that if you ask someone to disciple you, it often feels like you're asking them to marry you. And I've got news, but I'm already married, and she's prettier than you guys, and she's all I can handle. I don't need another endless commitment. But truthfully, having an end date makes it attainable and attractive. I know when my commitment's over and I can schedule my life around it. It's a good number, six months. As long as you resolve that I'm going to find my next group when this one ends, it's a good thing. I, I encourage you to set end dates. Six months is good enough. By the way, um, the end date of today, if you start, would be June 15th. So, all right. Uh, just settle, settle hint. Uh, next, number three. We'll be finishing here in a minute. Make it more than just a Bible study. Make it about growth. I know a lot of us are in Bible studies, but the problem is that we assume that we're getting the full usefulness of our discipleship simply because we exposit the scriptures once a week. That's a small part of it, but that's not enough. Look at what Paul says is what proper discipleship looks like in Titus 2. You know this. He says, Old men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness, 
Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to be of good character, practicing character. They must be. Secondly, it says this, and then they are to teach what is good by training young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure. And then Paul goes on and gives similar commands for the men in Titus 2, verse 6. It's not a Bible study. It's training in obedience. In his book, Mentor Like Jesus, Reggie Campbell writes, when I mentor guys who live lives of character, when they stay married, thrive in church, point their kids to Jesus, and succeed with integrity in their careers, it is then that they proclaim and understand what the way really is. It is not the accumulation of knowledge. In his book, Dangerous Calling, Paul David Tritt warns us about the urge to academize our faith and to assume that biblical maturity comes from the completion of our understanding and knowledge. It is the way that we live that we must be taught. And so when you're in discipleship, read your scripture. It's a good thing. Catch up. That's a good thing. But I want you to also focus on things that you need to improve on. I, I've come up with an acrostic for you guys. Shapes, I don't know, because I want you to be in the shape of Jesus, I guess, or be in shape. But focus on these things. S, scripture reading. B, holiness. C, church attendance. D, prayer. E, evangelism. And S, ministry service. Every discipleship meeting must be focused on these things because these are what matter. These are where your growth is. If you know all of the, screen, the things of Scripture and have all of the knowledge but do not have any of the obedience, your faith is faith with no stewardship. And so make it more than just a Bible study. Make it about sharpening. And finally, the last thing is this. Try doing discipleship by being constantly associated with someone. If you remember, the nature of discipleship is that it's, from last time, it's the constant association with the person that you're attempting to follow in order to be as identical to their faith as possible. Paul echoed this, uh, this sentiment in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. And when we look at his approach, I believe it was a literal physical follow, not an imitate, but a co-living the reality is that you can't do this once a week and grow. Not enough. It requires a constant association. One of my favorite things to do when I mentor somebody is that I always invite them to spend time with me in my ministry. Not just a once a week thing, but serve with me. And when we meet, develop a lesson with me. We go shooting together. We come to, we have family dinners together. Let me be associated with them as much as possible. If you want to hear an amazing statistic, in 35 AD, Stephen was martyred, and by 270 AD, Emperor Aurelian hated Christianity so much that he ordered acts of Christian charity, charity to be punished by death. Most notably, at that time, there was a man named Agapetus who sold his estate to help the poor, and the emperor charged him, imprisoned him, tortured him, and then beheaded him for the act. And then less than 50 years later, Christianity was made the official religion of the, Christian, or of the Roman Empire. 
and, and crucifixion had been abolished for fear of offending Christian piety. How did that happen? Michael Green argues that the way that this happened is because the Roman Empire witnessed Christians and they saw a phenomena. He says that they saw that Christians, in their faith, they experienced genuine transformed character. Two, when they witnessed Christians, they saw people of great outstanding community and love. And three, when they saw Christians, they saw people who witnessed to their undying endurance and faith and persecution. All of this the Roman Empire saw, and slowly over the course of 300 years, Christianity went from being illegal to being almost mandatory. <laughs> and, and I have issues with that. But the point is, none of those things are happening in passing. No person in the world is seeing you once a week and establishing how wonderful your faith is and how worthy of an endeavor it is to follow you and imitate you in your faith. It requires constant association with you. The people who were saved were the servants of Christian masters. The people who were saved were the jail, uh, the, the, the jail hands and the jail attendants of the Christians who were in prison. The people who were saved were those who were, were filing lawsuits against Christians. And then realizing that they had integrity, spending constant time with them, analyzing their character. And the only way that you can get that is through constant association and discipleship. My urge to you is that if you want to be in discipleship and be transformed, seek to spend as much time as possible with the Dave Knutsons and the Dave Speeds, with the Nick Balls and all those guys at our church that we have, and the Lannies and the Michelle McKims. Follow them. Spend time with them. Learn from them, and you will become like them. And then maybe you'll be a little bit more like Jesus, because that's discipleship, and you need that. I want to encourage you. Discipleship is a wonderful, worthwhile endeavor. If you are in it now, speak up the value of it. And if you aren't and have always been thinking about it, resolve today is the day that you will begin as James Montgomery Boyce says, discipleship is not a supposed second step in Christianity as if one first becomes a believer and then if he chooses a disciple. From the beginning, he says, discipleship is involved in what it means to be a Christian. So let us stir up one another in love. Let us stir up one another in good works. Let us seek to be obedient and utilize the body to build each other up because that is the way that God has intended because as iron sharpens iron, so one brother may sharpen another. Is that true? How true that is. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for that we can be built by you. It is the purpose of the church. Ephesians chapter 4, you gave the church so that we may be taught by the teachers, equipped, and then glued to the rest of the body to build it up. The whole existence of the church is so that we may benefit from it personally and then benefit others as we learn to follow and love you. Father, we love you so much. Help us to put this into practice and help us to love one another enough to be in discipleship with them and for those of us who are capable to be in discipleship of them. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.